0: Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from space kraken to giant sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code Isaac Sunzu Sun Tzu said, Rapidity is the essence of war. Take advantage of the enemy's unreadiness, make your way by unexpected routes, and attack unguarded spots. Imagine the strategic advantage then of being able to get your troops anywhere on the planet in mere minutes by dropping them from the heavens above. So today we'll be discussing dropships, troop transports, orbital insertions, drop pods, boarding torpedoes, and the general notion of how you move relatively fragile ground forces around in space and down to planets. This is a concept we normally think of as not being a real-life issue outside of sci-fi except in some distant and dystopian future, but as we'll see today, some of the techs involved might be in play here on Earth in this century. Dropships is a term that most fans of science fiction know pretty well already, it's one of those concepts that pops up in sci-fi and has picked up its own name even though it has no widely known existence outside of fiction. Wikipedia mentions it as an alternative term for a shuttlecraft in a little stub article, much like Mothership, another term everyone knows in the sci-fi community but that isn't a commonly used military, maritime, or aviation term. But while everyone knows what both are in sci-fi, neither is exactly well defined. Motherships are great big vessels out of which fighter and enemy landing craft emerge in terrifying quantities, something of a mix of aircraft carrier and troop transport dialed up to 11. Drop ships are those landing craft, coming down from space or maybe a very high or fast aircraft. They need to be able to keep their cargo safe, soldiers and gear or robot war machines safe from enemy fire and from the stresses of ultra-high speed travel and landing. For our purposes today, we'll loosely define a dropship as a vessel capable of also acting as a pickup ship, in essentially a helicopter-like role, with a pilot and possibly able to drop off or pick up whole platoons or armored vehicles, or maybe even entire battalions, whereas a drop pod is assumed to be an uncrewed vessel in which a single soldier, vehicle, or maybe a squad are landing. And when the pot is down, it's down, you're first unable to retreat back into it and back to orbit. Now this might be an invasion force landing on a planet like Earth, where those dropships are burning through the atmosphere at several miles or kilometers per second, experiencing the same punishing stresses and heat that our own spaceships encounter during atmospheric re-entry. An alien invader isn't re-entering the atmosphere, they presumably weren't in it to begin with, Well we often use re-entry as a familiar term for that, but atmospheric entry is better, and for today's topic we also need the term Orbital Insertion. These terms often get a bit confused in sci-fi jargon versus actual spaceflight terms, which themselves are not always uniform either. But we do need to contemplate re-entry for drop pods too, since a suborbital flight is a very good way to get troops from one side of a planet to another very, very quickly and suborbital forced to speed and trajectory as opposed to height. Suborbital trajectories often go to higher altitudes than orbital ones. Those folks would be re-entering the atmosphere but not as fast, as would folks who were in something like a quick reaction force that orbited a friendly planet ready to deploy troops or emergency force responders, such as from an orbital ring, or maybe a levitating anti-gravity propelled ship if you've got that tech. And a lot of the conversation in modern spaceships is about minimizing fuel use, so we don't normally contemplate certain options. As an example, dropping down at orbital velocities makes you a very hard target in some ways by sheer speed, but you're pretty predictable in general course. But not completely predictable since things are bouncing around at hypersonic speeds hitting differing density pockets of air jittering around a bit randomly, so you're still a hard target. This is basically what makes ICBMs hard to intercept even though you know what the target is almost right away. In practice, if fuel is no longer your ultimate constraint, you want your dropship randomly jittering around even more, following some random acceleration pattern from side to side and even a little up and down on the descent, so that nobody can be firing flak cannons at you with utter confidence of hitting, especially since most explosives have a rate of expansion or speed of shrapnel much less than ICBM or orbital speeds and you need that edge since they are probably firing a lot of stuff at you. A flak cannon is probably cheaper than a dropship after all, as is a one-time use missile and its hundred siblings sitting in a launch rack. Moreover, you don't want to drop at only the speed gravity gives you, faster is better, and you don't want to brake till the last moment. We need to do that to save fuel, but we're in the realm of chemical rockets. We can't rule out a vastly superior spaceship drive or fuel to what we have now as is common in science fiction, or other options like a dropship coming down on a super-strong and superconducting tether that is pumping electricity into enormous engines, or even beaming it down. After all, the troop transport or mothership can know the pattern the dropship would be using and the dropship can use a powered descent to make sure it's at the right place at the right time for intersecting with a power transfer beam, which in turn can probably be used to cause a lot of havoc on the enemy sensors coordination is a big deal anyway, as even if your ships are keeping the orbital bombardment to a minimum rather than nuking the place to a glows in the dark, they presumably are using targeted counter-battery fire on all the surface-to-air batteries firing on your drop pods. Don't assume those are all getting blown up before the drop occurs, either. Odds are they are giant cannons designed to be withdrawn into heavily shielded bunkers, or wads of fire-and-forget missiles stashed under cover, or mobile launchers. It doesn't take much to damage items moving at high speed, so they can be small munitions they're firing at you. Slamming into a handful of pea-sized metal fragments at several kilometers per second will scrap anything not as heavily armored as a modern tank. So you could have an innocuous semi-truck or RV that moved around, but it and its hundred thousand siblings could all burst open and each fire 10,000 anti-ship missiles when you begin your landing. A billion missiles swarming up to get your dropships does not seem an auspicious way to begin an invasion. Unless you're planning to wholesale glass the surface, which would kind of imply the ground troops were unnecessary, you should be assuming your dropships are being fired on as they come in. It sure is nice then if your own fleet is firing back, taking out those missiles or at least putting enough clutter and noise in the sky that tracking systems aren't ultra-reliable And all the various shrapnel around is more likely to wreck some unarmored tiny munition than the armored drop pod it's aimed at. It's entirely likely that up in orbit you already have a Kessler Syndrome event going on, a cascade of debris from billions of tons of spaceships and stations blowing up, much of which will be falling into the atmosphere and could probably be biased in that direction. If ground forces are firing on your landing vessels, dropping lots of chunks of wrecked satellites and defense platforms on them gives them lots of other targets to deal with and cuts down on the ones slamming into your own fleet. As we've discussed in other episodes, contrary to what sci fi often implies, planets are not defenseless if some big armada shows up. That seems to make sense when you consider how much effort it takes to launch a rocket to space while anything in space can just drop unpropelled metal balls down on the planet as hypersonic munitions. Problem is that if we're talking giant armadas of interplanetary or interstellar ships we are assuming they can get ships moving at faster than orbital speeds and much easier than we do now. So it isn't that big of an edge, especially since the more heavily armored your ships are the more mass you presumably can casually push around at high speed. If you can move a megaton battleship and its hundred sisters and escorts around a solar system at hundreds of kilometers per second, then that giant industrialized planet you're headed to can also shoot hundreds of megatons of ship-killing projectiles out of kilometer-long cannons at you at hundreds of kilometers per second. If you can both shoot projectiles at 200 kilometers per second, while theirs might lose 10 kilometers per second of speed climbing out of that gravity well and yours gain that, the result is only a 10% difference in projectile speed and a 22% difference in kinetic energy or raw damage. Such being the case, the high ground in space doesn't help that much. Quite to the contrary, it's like running up to some militant fortress factory in pajamas and shouting that they had better surrender because you had the high ground on this hill you're standing on. It's not that it isn't an advantage, but when 10,000 hatches swing open to present anti-personnel guns, it's hard to argue the balance of forces is on your side simply because you have the high ground. So the classic sci-fi case of fleets in orbit opting to send in ground troops when they have the enemy below at their mercy but do not want to pursue a scorched earth strategy is not something we should be taking for granted. This might be true if you have a big technological or manpower advantage over an opponent, like going after some small colony or lower tech civilization, but then your real advantages are your quality or quantity of forces, not their altitude. We need to remember also that the simple existence of big invasion fleets, outside of you having your enemy at a huge population or resource advantage, tends to imply that planet had a huge orbital infrastructure and probably not just in low orbit. You need to be sending in forces to seize orbital facilities and habitats, and you probably also had to go through layers of other structures. Outside of sci-fi, we have no reason to expect the norm is to pop in on the outskirts of some star system and zip in at high speed unopposed beyond having to engage a few enemy system defense ships and a few orbital defense stations. More likely you've spent months plowing through minefields and ambushes while any of a million space habitats orbiting that star are either shooting at you too or demanding you acknowledge their neutrality and detour around them. You are not charging in at ultra-high speeds across the landscape unopposed. Until you get to the enemy's stronghold to sit down for a protracted siege. And when entering a hostile system, the high ground isn't helping much either. The Sun is the bottom of our solar system, you climb out of its gravity well to get to ever more distant and colder worlds orbiting it, and that includes millions of minor planets in our current solar system without even adding in artificial space habitats and stations, and billions of things big enough to be a concealed multi-megaton nuclear bomb and if you're running into a solar system at a percentage of light speed, every random rock you hit basically is a nuclear bomb. So it is entirely likely your future ground forces are getting years worth of combat experience while you cut your way in trying to bribe, intimidate, or invade every minor planet and space habitat on your attack vector in toward that planet, and it itself might have millions of giant mile-wide space habitats and facilities in its own higher orbits that you'd have to plow through too. Those folks are not engaging in high-speed drops, the various minor planets and meg structures have too little gravity to worry much about orbital mechanics or to give your dropships any free speed. I suppose these are technically boarding actions, but then they're not really ships and you're not dropping a wooden board or plank across your decks to run over and get them. Space is not an ocean and we want to be careful treating it like it is. Which is irritating because all the old Age of Sail, Ship of the Line, or World War 1 and 2 battleship and aircraft carrier tactics are easily converted into the ocean of space for some compelling space combat in sci-fi. The same is true of infantry tactics, or rather, untrue. Your dropship needs to either be able to absorb lots of damage or evade it or move so fast it barely has time to be shot at, preferably all of the above, or your troops aren't getting to the target, except maybe as vaporized ash. However, it often seems like all the dropships or drop pods or boarding missiles we see in sci-fi are a lot more expensive and weaponized than the troopers on board the ship. And in the context of space, where mass is your limiting factor, it makes us wonder about not just why we're even bothering to send ground forces in those vessels, as opposed to large bombs, but also if all that armor and technology on that vessel is more valuable than its cargo. And yes, those are human lives, or alien lives. But you're seriously endangering them by having them on board and dumping them into a ground battle, and we need to justify why that ship isn't just an AI carrying war robots instead of a living pilot and crew landing to drop off living troops. Even the classic drop-pot example, where it's just a big cocoon with a few defense measures like maneuvering thrusters and chaff, still seems like it's a lot of extra mass. Two of the better known settings for using drop ships and drop pods, Battletech and Warhammer 40,000 respectively, have decent handways for their settings. Those are tabletop games where you're trying to get your giant battle mech or superhuman warriors into short range combat, and much like spaces and ocean fleet combat analogies it doesn't hold water very well and exists for the rule of cool. That said, a drop pod needs not to be heavy or single use, by which I don't mean reusable for another drop at a later date. It may or may not make sense to be hauling these things back into orbit, rather the idea that the drop pod might serve some function when it gets to the ground, even if it is simply dumb metal serving as a blast shield. We might imagine one blowing a crater at its landing site then rapidly swinging its side apart to form shield walls around that complete with converting its point defense guns into defense turrets on that wall. So too, that armor, the bits not too damaged, might be a ton of supplies instead. It's your drop pod armor but it's also your power packs for your infantry's guns and power armor, or food, or anything else that can serve some role as armor and does not explode when it gets hit, and can then be used groundside in some other role too. The individual plates of armor might all unfold into a hundred small war robots and drones too, those not damaged on the landing. Assuming whatever you use for fuel doesn't explode easily, it might be that you got hundreds of armored fuel tanks on your pod and the fuel acts as armor too. And then you have a lot more options, your pod isn't a dumb brick falling through the sky. Same if you got classic sci-fi force fields running on energy, and the same pool your thrusters use too, you can burn mass or armor or energy to gain speed or jink around evasively or lose speed. Even a drop pod that's dropping under gravity needs to use a lot of energy to slow that fall, and in practice you want to get to your target as fast as you can, meaning faster than gravity will accelerate you. That's more speed to burn fuel reaching and decelerating from. You can save fuel by aerobraking, but that's slowing you well before you land, and once you blow a parachute you become a fairly big target. It is possible you could have some sort of weird inertial technology that lets you pull off an instant deceleration, or some sort of flash temporal stasis that lets your troops and pod survive slamming into an enemy ship they're boarding or the ground, also known as breaking. However, your troops might be able to survive very fast accelerations, they might be robots or cyborgs, we'll be examining the latter next month, they might be humans descending in a pool of breathable liquid as opposed to air, that's been kicked around as a way of allowing people to survive higher G forces of acceleration for a long while and the European Space Agency has studied it and thinks it's plausible having people immersed in liquid, and breathing it too, lets you move from surviving low tens of Gs to hundreds. Of course, contemplating surviving breathing liquid is not the same as fighting while breathing liquid. Any technology that widens the limits of the possible this way probably relies heavily on professional medical assistance at the destination, not people who literally want to kill you. There's also the issue with finding a liquid that works. fluorocarbon is a substance usually suggested, but it has a much higher density than water or humans, and thus while you can't do liquid breathing with it. It wouldn't work for the high acceleration application. You need something or some mix of somethings that has a density as close to water as you can contrive for best effect. If you can make such a substance, or modify people so they don't need to breathe air, it becomes a bit of a no-brainer to be using it since it will also cushion you against impact damage from enemy fire or hitting the ground. And if you can survive a few seconds of, say, 500G deceleration or jinking, that allows a change in speed of 15 kilometers a second, more than orbital velocity, or a change in expected position of over 20 kilometers in those 3 seconds. That is a big enough shift in anticipated coordinates that you could survive a nuke going off where they thought you were supposed to be. And yes, it is entirely plausible that anti-dropship batteries might be firing low-yield nukes at you High-tech civilizations not only probably have cures for cancer and the ability to build vacuum-tight bunkers under everyone's house, but can probably contemplate using Geiger counter-armed drones to go clean up hotspots in the aftermath if they win. It also means you can be using some super material like graphene to deploy some micrometer-thick parachute and tethers that is ridiculously thin and light and strong, and that might let you pull off a very high-G no-fuel maneuver, not just slowing your speed but whipping you around your location and also giving you a ridiculously big radar signature, potentially a kilometer wide one from a chute weighing only kilograms. That would sound bad and the enemy can shred that thing with weapons fire, but it is disposable and your pod doesn't need to be in its center. You can also send a first wave of duds or redundant supplies in using such chutes to blanket the area, literally, and make targeting and aiming at wave 2 very hard. Now graphene gets overhyped a bit, but it does have amazing tensile strength and may be an amazing substance for using as a capacitor or battery, so while we can't imagine other super materials making a drop pod very sturdy, one might imagine a graphene walled pod that was a bunch of batteries and which could blow out its various chutes or gliders, and upon landing could have all that chute and tether use the remaining power to drag the pieces back in, and hundreds of tons of dirt and rock with it that it had anchored into on impact forming a nice little bunker at your landing site. It probably got ripped to shreds during all that descent and impact, but whatever tattered bits are left over could potentially get that job done, while the whole impact site is providing general cover and concealment from the tatters and debris kicked up in the landing. But this need not be a pod at this point, and if we're dropping people in power armor, or exoskeletons anyway, as opposed to lightly armored infantry, it is entirely plausible the drop pod would be more like a parachute backpack strapped on for kicking the trooper right out of the airlock. We don't really need all that sophisticated material, smart matter, or nanotech to contemplate a small package of material that could envelop them for the drop and alter its shape for best effect and maneuverability, acting as entry vehicle and glider before going parachute and ground cover. And while this sort of thing sounds incredibly high-tech, none of this involves technologies that are necessarily out of reach this century. Folks might go to battle from suborbital craft or diving right out of low-orbit space stations, or again to non-military search or rescue efforts, and maybe during our own lifetimes. Also if you're breaking in hundreds of G-Force, Depending on the atmosphere and your altitude when dropping, you might only need a few seconds to make your deceleration, and your whole drop from a ship in low orbit might be well under a minute. As opposed to the better part of an hour it would take to fall at terminal velocity from orbital altitude. During a boarding action or drop, you might be getting shot out of a cannon yourself. And for that matter, that ship sending the troops or boarding party might be firing an actual grapple and tether that a vessel can race down, which can also supply power to that vessel. We already have wild guided missiles with as much as a 4km range, and that's probably scalable to a thousand or more. If you've got materials that can do space elevators, you could do that on a normal planet, and no special supermaterials are needed for ship to ship or for use against space stations or minor planets. We may be calling these drop pods or boarding missiles, same as drop ships might also include landing craft or assault boats, many of these terms are hazily defined even in sci-fi and interchangeable. As to drop ships, in the strictly guided sense and the ability to both deploy and extract troops, many of the abilities we we're discussing for drop pods apply in whole or part. A drop ship doing a drop off doesn't need to necessarily slow down much either. It could be jettisoning troops in big, rapidly inflatable bubbles that air break them and cushion them on impact, like an airbag. However, this can also apply to extraction. A drop ship might not need to come to a halt. To grab troops needing to retreat or reposition. Tethers with a bit of springiness could maglock onto a passing trooper and yank them up, then winch them in. We've discussed some tricks for decelerating spacecraft at destinations by this sort of harpoon and winch technique without ripping the target apart or whiplashing them, and this would be a harder but technically possible adaptation of that. Extraction can also be more metaphorical too, like extracting a saved copy of the trooper's mind, a non-ideal but better than nothing option if you're about to bite the bullet. So too, most of these techniques work well with minor modification for evacuating a spaceship or space station, as lifeboats or escape pods. Now we've spent a lot of time talking about how to make these smaller, even one-man backpacks, but how about bigger? It's often pointed out that spaceships wouldn't be designed for atmospheres but your dropship might be. And assuming you've got the engines for it or some cool anti-grav tech, bigger might be better, you might be able to land giant walking battle mechs or entire armored battalions in one ship. Would that make sense though? All your eggs in one very large and easily targetable basket? Maybe. As always it depends so much on the available tech, generally speaking it's very plausible that reactors get more powerful and efficient in power to weight ratio the bigger you go so it might allow stronger engines or more powerful shields if you've got that tech. Your options for defense might be limited to sucking it up and tanking enemy fire, after all if they are using options like lasers or smart bullets, or AI guided missiles, it may not be realistic to assume being smaller and more maneuverable offered much tactical advantage. Alternatively, being big and thickly armored and able to boast tons of point defense systems might be more effective. Meanwhile, we might see dropships bringing in commando squads or platoons. We might just as easily have dropships the size of stadiums that came down like a brick while exchanging floods of fire with ground forces and just landing like a mobile castle and unleashing a deluge of war machines and troops. It all depends on the technology and scale. For instance your ground invasion force might be a bunch of hypervelocity darts that slams into bunkers and unleash a swarm of nanobots or flip on your teleporter homing beacon or short range hyperspace jump link and out pops the assault force of heavily armored space marines, killbots, or death commandos. This doesn't answer the question of if you would ever actually use ground forces over just blowing a place to smithereens, and I can offer no definitive argument for that. However, I would argue that we've had cheap explosives longer than we've had nukes, and there are few if any veterans alive these days who would've gone to war in a time before atomic bombs were available. Nonetheless, a ton of those veterans went to war in helicopters or ground vehicles and did their job mostly as infantry, myself included, and I think that many of those myriad and variable reasons for that would still apply in the future. Not that the future is in any way homogenous, we are likely to see lots of changes in tactics based on available technology and resources, not to mention ethics and world views or galaxy views. In the end, it's hard to say how often we would use infantry and in ground conflicts and a rapid assault rule, but if we do, the same rule applies as always, get in fast and expect to get hit, and if so, big armored dropships, or smaller drop pods, certainly will be critical to deciding those conflicts, and they look cool too. So that will wrap us up for today but this weekend, on Sunday the 30th, we will have our end of the month livestream Q&A. After that we'll head into August to look at building a space elevator not on Earth but on the Moon. Then we'll head trillions of years into the future, to the end of time and the final twilight on the last planet. Then it will be time for our monthly Sci-Fi Sunday on Cyborg Armies. And if you missed last weekend's Sci-Fi Sunday, Robots & Warfare, you can catch it now while you wait, along with last week's episode, Ammonia-Based Life Forms. If you'd like to get alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to hit the like, subscribe, and notification buttons. You can also help support the show on Patreon, and if you want to donate and help in other ways, you can see those options by visiting our website, IsaacArthur.net. You can also catch all of SFIA's episodes early and ad-free on our streaming service, Nebula, along with hours of bonus content at go.nebula.tv slash Isaac As always, thanks for watching, and have a great week!